as will be our first passage this morning. And it has, of course, been three weeks since I have taught Sunday school. So we have turned our attention to denominations, and what we're doing really is kind of focusing in on the doctrines that drive the denominations rather than just do a history of the denomination itself. And so we had <clears throat> begun by talking, of, we didn't begin, but we have turned our attention ultimately to the subject matter of baptism, to baptism. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll continue on. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that we would all be good students of it. And Father, help us to have a good spirit uh, about what we believe, but help us to be firm in understanding our faith. And I pray your blessing then upon our time together today in Jesus' name. Amen. So with reference to baptism, um, apart from the position that we would take, right? some like Roman Catholics baptize as a means of regeneration. They believe that the process of baptizing a baby in water is instrumental in creating the new spiritual life. Uh, Lutherans believe that baptism doesn't save, but it creates the faith that saves. Um, and covenant theologians, of which primarily, but not exclusively, would be um, Presbyterian, are going to baptize <clears throat> Um, on the basis of its covenant nature and that it symbolizes a child's participation or potential participation in the covenant. And, and while we wouldn't agree with that position, I would caution us always about being unnecessarily unkind or brutal to um, our brothers in covenant theology. The reality, folks, is that while we would disagree with much of their theology, we live in a country that was built primarily by covenant theologians. Um, our system of government and our interaction with government, the, the men who were the founders and the framers were primarily covenant theologians in their viewpoint. And so... <clears throat> They're going to view Israel and the church differently than we would. They're going to view some of the um, rituals differently than we would. Um, but they're, they're truly not genuinely enemies on the basis of that, although I do think that they are tremendously wrong in uh, the position that they take on baptism. You notice that your outline this morning is really pretty simple because there really are only two points in my argument. Uh, infant baptism is technically called pedo-baptism. I think that's in your outline. And, and the type of baptism that we practice is called credo-baptism, which is the requirement of a profession of faith before one is baptized. It's not specifically age-related. I mean, we don't have a, an official age, but we do require that those who be baptized be able to articulate why they are being baptized. And and so I just thought that we would, right, why do we do that differently than a pedobaptist would do? Um, and I reviewed again this morning Kevin DeYoung's argument in defense of infant baptism and worked through his points. And I'm going to use some of the same text that he uses um, and obviously view them at a different lens. So, so let's begin. Why do Baptist, 
insists upon only credo-baptism. And of course, we're not the only ones that do this. Uh, we are not the only people who baptize by immersion upon a profession of faith. But it is one thing that you will find in almost every Baptist church. And the first reason of that is, number one, because of its New Testament sequence. I'm just going to deal with this as, as efficiently as I can. Two points. Because of its New Testament sequence. For instance, and, and what I have now are just a, a bunch of verses that you can add to your outline if you want. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And I just want to stop here, right? And some of you are, you know, <clears throat> we have English teachers here and teachers here and English grammarians here. So let me, let me just take a moment and point this out to you. The main verb in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is the word teach. And you notice that it's just in our King James Bible, it is just teach. It means to disciple, uh, to make disciples. Um, it is the main idea. Okay? And the way that it works in grammar, of course, is that when you have a main idea, a verb like that, sometimes that verb is carried along by participles. That, that, that help us to move the verb along. And, and there are actually several participles <clears throat> in it, <clears throat> in the verse. And, and actually the first one is go. <clears throat> right? In order to make disciples, <clears throat> you have to go. People have to be sent. The gospel has to go out. The message has to be proclaimed. People do not become disciples by sitting in phone booths and just all on their own receiving a heavenly communication. The gospel must be preached. People must go. So there's the first participle. <clears throat> In the making of disciples, they get, then are baptized. And you notice that <clears throat> grammatically the participles are pointed out by the ing endings. Right? Baptized could be a verb, but when it's baptizing, it's not the main verb. It's not the main idea. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> teaching them, there's another participle, to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the world. And I hope I didn't digress and, and make it cloudy. Notice the sequence, folks. First you make disciples, then you baptize them. First they are disciples. The sequence is clear. First they are disciples. Disciples are baptized. That's the sequence. I got a bunch of verses here. The sequence never varies. Why do you baptize only upon a profession of faith? Because the New Testament pattern of sequence is nobody was ever baptized until they were able to articulate their faith. It's just really that simple. That is the single largest reason why we do it. The New Testament sets it out as a pattern time and time and time again. Look at Mark chapter 16. All right, and I will give the disclaimer because I know that some of you are looking at versions that are not King James. You know that there's some controversy about the end of Mark's uh, gospel um, <clears throat> beginning with verse number 9 down to the end of the chapter and it's debated and contested and we're not going to get into all of that. But just notice the flow of the argument in Mark 16, 15, and 16. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, which some people use to teach baptismal regeneration. And he that believeth, but he that believeth not shall be damned or condemned. But again, folks, you notice the sequence. You believe and you are baptized. There's no baptizing in the hope that faith will follow. There's no baptizing upon, well, we'll get to this on its significance, but the sequence is the same always. There is faith expressed, and then there is baptism that follows. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, and this is one of the central passages argued. Again, I would argue erroneously by those who practice infant baptism. Of course, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God falls upon the 120 apostles. Peter stands up and preaches. And while he is still preaching, the conviction of God falls so heavily that he is interrupted. Verse number 37, Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And I can just tell you folks that every man who preaches would love nothing more than to be winding down his message to be met with a chorus. Well, what should we do? Um, So what should we do? Well, here's what you should do, Peter said. Repent, which we would understand contextually to be repent from your unbelief, from the spirit that crucified Christ in rejection and received Christ. Repent and be baptized. And there it again is, folks, is the sequence, right? And again, our brothers and sisters, and many of them are brothers and sisters, and they are dear brothers and sisters. Go look. See, because the promise is to you and to your children, so we baptize our children. But if you really want to be faithful to the text, folks, if you really want to argue that Acts 2.38 is permitting infant baptism, then you have to somewhere in there Include in your theology that that infant is capable of repenting. And I would just point out to you folks that even the most strident infant baptizer is probably not prepared to grant that kind of ability to an infant. I mean, look folks, we have laws We have laws in secular courts that restrict minors from making binding decisions because we simply recognize that they lack some capacity. 16-year-olds cannot go out and buy a car legally without having somebody who has a majority involved in the process. So... If Acts 2.38 really is supporting infant baptism, and I think that it's a stretch, I I think that a natural reading of the promises to you and your children is that the promise continues successively in the generations, not for household baptism. You still have to deal with the sequence that is demanded. Before there can be a baptism, there has to be a repentance. The sequence never varies. The sequence never varies. Acts 2.41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. 
Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And on the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Or Acts chapter 8 and verse number 12. Philip goes out and preaches. Acts chapter 8, verse number 12. When they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women. So again, folks, at the risk of repeating myself ad nauseum, the sequence never varies in the New Testament. Nobody was baptized until they believed. Nobody but was baptized until they could articulate why they were getting baptized, until they were able to evidence a profession. Right, which, <clears throat> with reference to Westwood Heights Baptist Church, if a parent comes to me with one of their children, says, my child would like to be baptized, we baptize children. But my conversation, folks, almost from the very outset has been the same. I say to mom and dad, you live with this child. Are you convinced? Right? Are you convinced that they are able to articulate? I mean, you know, I'm being a little more detailed perhaps. Are you convinced that they're saved? That their profession, that, they, that they're able to understand what they are professing and why they are professing it? This is the sequence. Acts chapter 8, verse number 36. <clears throat> and as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So what is the impediment? Do you believe? Do you believe? Acts chapter 9. Let's just read the wonderful story of Paul's conversion. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him unto Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight, inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all the call on thy name. 
But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered into his house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the wayest thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. First faith, <clears throat> then baptism. Acts chapter 10. And verse number 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which, of the circumcision which believe were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So again, the sequence is the same. You believe, and then you are baptized. Acts chapter 16. In verse number 11, Acts 16, 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days, and on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized, and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Right? Her heart was opened. She received the word. She was baptized. Down to verse number 30. <clears throat> the Philippian jailer brought him out. <clears throat> verse number 30 brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. Acts chapter 18 and verse number 8. This is, this is Corinth. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, Acts 18.8, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And then Acts chapter 19. This is at Ephesus. <clears throat> Verse number 
Verse number one, it came to pass while Paul, that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came into Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he sent unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto him, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. All right, so there is illumination about the truth of Christ in the gospel, and there is baptism. Folks, this is the sequence from the giving of the Great Commission all the way through the practice of the early church. You can just walk through the book of Acts. It is the same. It is the same from the day of Pentecost to wherever it was that Paul went. It is the same trajectory. The gospel was preached. People responded to the gospel, and those who responded got baptized. So why do we insist upon credo-baptism? Because of its biblical sequence. Because of its biblical sequence. They're just simply, even if, folks, right? Even if, and I don't think for a minute that that is the implication, even if those households contain children that were baptized, the sequence doesn't vary. The implication is that those infants and children were participants in the confession of faith. It's the only pattern that there is. That brings me secondly to this, right? Why do we insist upon credo-baptism? Number one, because of its biblical sequence. Number two, because of its biblical significance. Because of its biblical significance. I don't want to, I don't, I'm not going to take the time and, and try and navigate through all of this, folks, but covenant theology is named covenant theology because of the way that it tries to navigate the unity of the biblical covenants. And, and one of its, excuse me, one of its criticisms of our way of viewing things, which <clears throat> whether you know you are or not, you're, you're a dispensationalist, or at least you're sitting in a dispensationalist viewpointed ministry, is that they would argue that we, we kind of jerk the scriptures around, <clears throat> that we fail to appreciate the continuity and the unity of the Bible throughout all of these covenants. And so they take infant baptism always back, first of all, to the Abrahamic covenant. That circumcision was a condition of the Abrahamic covenant. We are covenant people, and therefore we baptize in the name of that new covenant. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> um, that's it. Very simply, but but let's let's talk about right. Let's just talk about the significance and along these lines. Number one, and again, all you have, if I recall, in your outline is a place for sequence and significance. I figured you could put in here whatever notes you wanted to add for your own benefit. <clears throat> All right. 
the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicts that the New Covenant will involve God's Spirit. Part of the prediction by the Old Covenant about the conditions of the New Covenant is the presence of God's Spirit. Let's just take a moment and go back to the Old Testament. Particularly, to there are three passages. Uh, Jeremiah 31. Not accidental, by the way, that the three key passages outlining the the shape, the the look of the new covenant come at a time when God has just dismantled the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 31, verse number 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, we're not going to read it, but beginning in verse number 35, God goes on to articulate how determined he is to keep that commitment. And as a dispensationalist, I would point out to you that the promise of the covenant is a promise that is to be made with the house of Israel. And were we covenant theologians, were we covenant in our perspective, I would go on to make the argument that you are the replacement. That you, the church, have replaced Israel. Because they were unfaithful to the covenant, even though God was a husband to them and a good husband. And so God no longer is entrusting the covenant to Israel. He has now passed it along to the church and all that goes to the church. And, and folks, I'm, I'm mentioning that because a lot of the logic for baptizing babies is tied up in that concept of having handed off the covenant to us. Not that we don't enjoy components of the Abrahamic covenant. We do. In him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's us. But our understanding would be that there is a covenant coming with the house of Israel that God is not confused in the speaking of these words. And it is going to be a very internalized form of covenant. Let me ask you to turn, if you would, next to Ezekiel chapter 11. Jeremiah, of course, is the man that God uses to describe the fall of the nation of Israel, Judah specifically, to the Babylonians. Ezekiel is the man that God uses to describe the destruction of the temple. And both these men lived 
during that time when the Babylonians were there. Ezekiel was carried away captive and Jeremiah was given the option to go to Babylon or to stay in the land and he stayed in the land. So both of these men writing at this very tumultuous time are God's mouthpieces for the future events for Israel. Ezekiel 11 beginning in verse number 17. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall come thither, they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep mine ordinances, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So here's the promise of the new covenant and a new spirit. And of course, we know, folks, from all the New Testament passages, that this is the spirit of God residing in the hearts of his people, regenerating people. And then one last passage, Ezekiel chapter 36. And we will no doubt at some point in time turn our attention to this, these kinds of subjects briefly, Because one of the things that contributes to differing denominations is our view of the place of Israel in future events. I'm actually debating whether to try and address it, and I didn't get to it this Sunday, but I might do it next Sunday in light of Israel's war with Hamas. Um, Isaiah 43.15 says, I created Israel. I created Israel. And whatever goes on in the world today, folks, and however that thing unfolds and Iran's threatening to get involved, Israel's not going anywhere. Israel's not going anywhere because it has the greatest guarantor that could ever be. Jehovah God, its creator. And uh, he has his purposes in allowing it to get punched around, but it is never going away. And uh, So anyway, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 Verse number 22, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statues. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. So there is the promise. There is the promise. 
So the Old Testament and the darkest days of Israel's existence is making a promise of a new covenant in which God will work to put his spirit in there in his people so that they no more defile his pure name. And you'll notice, folks, because this, is, this ought to be precious to us. God is not doing, God doesn't do these things. God doesn't keep us eternally secure for our sake. It's not for our sake that we can't lose our salvation. It is for his sake that we cannot lose our salvation. That makes it an even more certain promise. God said to Israel towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. The only thing that kept them from going away, folks, was God's commitment to the greatness of his name. That is very good news indeed. So this is the promise, okay? So I haven't lost my mind and I haven't lost my train of thought, folks. Why do we insist upon credo-baptism? Number one, because of its biblical sequence. It always follows an acknowledgement of Christ and his work. It always expresses faith in who he is and what he has done. Then it is baptized in testimony to that. And because of what it signifies... What does baptism by immersion as a believer signify? What does it demonstrate? It is a testament, folks, not to a hope. Not to a hope. I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a moment that false professions cannot be baptized. I'm saying that when we baptize, we baptize upon a reality, not simply a hope. We are baptizing this baby in the hopes that it recognizes its covenant membership and continues to follow the Lord. That is not the position that we would take. Go back to the New Testament, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. And we will not turn to them, but you find this instance in all of the Gospels. Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33. Matthew 3.11. John the Baptist speaking, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Right? And when John preached, people said, what do we do? And he, he, he knew who Christ was. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What his baptism was a call to repentance. Give up your sin. Give up your sin. He was a man whose ministry was preparatory for the work of Christ. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, and I would just point out, folks, we, we talked about this, that with, with both circumcision and baptism, sometimes the Bible uses it to describe the physical act 
and sometimes it uses it to describe the symbolic act. So what you have here is John predicting immersion in one of two ways. And I think that you should think of it like that. It's not both. It is one or the other. Because Christ is ultimately the judge. One of the things that the Father grants to him, John 5, to demonstrate his approval of the Son is judgment over all things. So people will either be baptized into the Spirit of God, saved, or they will be baptized into the wrath of God, fire, immersed. People are put in the lake of fire. They're immersed in it. And that's, that's how John's using it here. He's looking at Christ's work, both of Redeemer and Judge. Not that you are somehow baptized with the Holy Spirit, and also, by the way, you are baptized with fire. Although, and especially if you've grown up Roman Catholic, and I didn't really want to get into all this, they recognize a variety of forms of baptism, right? Baptism by trial and those kinds of things. But right, we're, we're not, I'm, we're not going to even go exploring on that. So there it, there it is. And then look at Matthew chapter 3 in verse number 16. Jesus got baptized. And what happened when Jesus got baptized? Now, again, Jesus was born, folks, as the God-man. He didn't become the God-man in Matthew 3. He was born the God-man. He was the God-man in Matthew 1. He was fully God and fully man when he was 12 years old, and Luke tells us about him spending his time in the temple and his parents looking for him. But notice what happens with his baptism. Verse 15, Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Because John said, you know what? This is not right that I would baptize you. But yes, it is right. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him, descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not as spectacularly, folks, not visibly. But New Testament baptism is always associated with the reception of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. All saved believers have the Holy Spirit or they're not saved. There's, there's no such thing as saved people who don't have the Spirit. Just like when we closed out the book of 1 Corinthians last Wednesday night, right? Paul just, Paul just paints this, draws this thick black line, right? You either love the Lord Jesus or you're cursed. There, there are only two groups of people, folks, lost and saved. Saved people love the Lord, sometimes feebly, sometimes weakly, sometimes it's hard to find, but they love the Lord. Lost people are under God's curse. That's, that's it. And the Spirit of God comes. Now, you got the thief on the cross. I'm not, I'm not saying that if, if you, if, you know, I, got, I made a profession of faith in April and didn't get baptized till June. If I had died in May, I'm not concerned that I wouldn't have been saved. 
You get the Holy Spirit when you get saved. But baptism is emblematic of that, of that reality that the Spirit of God has come to reside. It is a new covenant ordinance. A couple of the passages that we've already looked at, we'll go back and look at them. Acts 10.47 and Acts 19.1-6, right? There again, as with Jesus, there was a very visible, dramatic receiving of the Holy Spirit. Tongues were talked in. Signs were done. But there's the connection. New Testament people, when they believe on the Lord, receive the Holy Spirit. And baptism is the testament to that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So again, we're not going to go back and re-preach First Corinthians twelve, but there is there is a unity to us, and there is an individuality to us. Galatians chapter three. And verse number 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there it is again, folks. This, this baptism into the Lord, this reception of the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Same thing, Colossians 2. Let me ask you to turn very quickly to Romans chapter 6. which I know is backward out of sequence, but it was where I wanted to close. The point that I'm trying to make, folks, is that baptism is a physical ritual performed upon what we understand to be a reality, something that has actually happened. Not something that could happen. Something that has happened. Something that has happened and has lingering, ongoing impact in the life of those who believe. Romans chapter 6, very quickly. I'm just about out of time. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he had just pointed out that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God forbid, verse 2, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now that's not water baptism. That's the baptism in the spirit. Water baptism is the testimony to that. But you notice that Paul is talking about things there that have happened. And these things have a lingering impact. Verse number 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, I'm I'm probably going to have to come back and revisit this and spend more time on it. But when Paul uses that expression, old man there, he's probably not talking about our flesh as such. That part of us that is irredeemable, that is always against God, Romans 8, that can never be brought into reconciliation against God. He's actually just talking about what the flesh uses to accomplish sinful purposes, knowing that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon or account yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We baptize people by water, folks. Again, not believing in the mechanics of the water, right? Buried in the likeness of his death raised to walk in newness of life. The significance of baptism is a reality, not simply a hope. And it is more than just an attachment to the Abrahamic covenant, which is a critically important covenant. But we're not just doing it because we have a continuity of covenants. It is the new covenant, and we are new covenant people. Okay, I'm happy to talk to you as always privately. I've uh, kind of overextended my time, so we'll be back at 11 o'clock.